the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 20. In Memoriam, June 2019. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the latest edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today's edition is another of our In Memoriam episodes. We don't do these things as live, so we do have a few people that we have to watch episodes of in order to remember their life in acting. And the first one today is going to be... first episode we're going to watch today is in memory of Catherine Helmond, who is best, who's an American actress. She's best known for her role on Soap, which was a um, comedy take on American soap operas in the 1970s. And what we're going to see today is her role in the pilot the unscreened pilot episode of the Elvira show from 1993 and this is um, around the title character of Elvira Mistress of the Dark a, a character portrayed by Cassandra Peterson she's the lead character in one of my all-time favorite films Elvira Mistress of the Dark this has been on my radar to show for quite a while this is our first American show that we're seeing We've done MacGyver. Yeah, but not for our podcast. No, I'm afraid of, yes. And so we're going to watch the Elvira show in memoriam of Catherine Helmond. At the end, we'll lead nicely into our second show, but I'll say a bit more about that after we're finished. Before we do, can I whip out the tonic screwdriver for a very important... If we're going to be raising a glass to these fine people, can we we raise a fine glass to... Gin. What have we got for today? Today's gin review in the Tonic Screwdriver is Gin Ting, um, which is a mango and passion fruit gin. It's quite fruity and summery. Packs a little bit of a punch. I mean, it's 42%. It's a proper gin, not a gin liqueur. It's very, very drinkable. I'm going to steam in it straight away and give it five burners. It gets five from me as well. This is lovely. This is one of my favourites. That's wonderful. It's a gin ting. I'm loving it. Yeah. This is actually the one that I was saving for Karen joining in with a podcast, but she's not able to make it this time. No, and didn't. I couldn't resist. And it seems a very appropriate thing to toast our fallen heroes to. And, uh, and with that, shall we crack on with the first episode? Yes. Wrong VT. It's working. It's working. Uh-oh. I think I put too much up in his atom. <laughs> oh. What are you doing? Oh, just a little redecorating. <laughs> really? <clears throat> how do you explain this? Oh, Paige, you know how I like to pick up men? <laughs> I didn't want to believe it, but it's true. Both of you, you're witches. Witches? Us? <laughs> <laughs> That was the pilot episode of the Elvira show from 93. 93. Untransmitted. What did you think? It was standard American sitcom fare, um, like any other one from the 60s, more or less through to the present day. So yeah. you know what you're going to get in studio audience setting. I mean, there was a big chunk of Bewitched in there, wasn't there? There was. Um, and It's interesting that they had a talking black cat before Sabrina had mm. a talking black cat. Yeah, overtones of Bewitched, the monsters... With muckier jokes. Yeah, uh, quite near the knuckle muckier jokes um, and wordplay, like a 
I mean, the, a big stiff cock. <laughs> yeah. The the film Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is it's full of comments like this. And actually, one of the one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me happened because I'm such a fan of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. I was at a, a scientific conference in Salzburg with my entire research group. This is when I was doing postdoctoral research in quite a prestigious research group in Belfast. And we had a, a lot of industrial sponsors, so they'd, um, the industrial sponsors were there as well, and tended to be very generous with the, the expenses money. And a lot of them were from the oil industry, so were quite keen on a drink or two. So the first night we, we got there, there was a few of us went, went out, and caned it a bit. <laughs> really? Yeah. We were drinking with people who'd worked oil rigs so they 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 knew their way around a, a drink or two and it wasn't massive i think it was about two o'clock in the morning we were we were all heading in our different directions fortunately the industrial sponsors had all left by this point and there were oh, i don't know about a dozen or so of us um mostly lads and as happened after a lot of alcohol taken a little bit short so disappeared onto a um park i think i think it was to sort that problem out and had to walk back under quite a low bridge with quite a low lintel. Troop back under this, and I'm quite a bit taller than everybody else. So while everybody Usually, else passed yeah. under the lintel, I smacked my head into it, and I gushed blood everywhere. There was a, a tiny little cut, but heads bleed quite a lot. They do. The first, the works first aider was there, and I had, had a look, and didn't think it was too bad. Went, went back to my hotel, bandaged my head with the first aid kit that I had, had with me to make sure that I didn't bleed on the, the sheets or anything. Didn't think too much more about it. Woke up the next day, went to register for the conference. Of course, everybody had hear, heard what's happened. And there were, um, because the whole research group was there, there was about 40, 40 of us, the uh, departmental secretary had come along to keep an eye on us and, um, and actually give her a bit of a holiday because she was coming up, coming up to retirement. She was obviously, and she and I got on extremely well. She, and she was obviously concerned that I'd, I'd mm. cracked my head open and uh, she came up to me and said, oh, I heard what happened. Uh, how's your head? And this is a quote from the film, but my answer without thinking about it was, well, I've never had any complaints. <laughs> and there must have been a dozen people around me who heard me say this. And it was just like, <laughs> oh my God, I am so sorry. And the, it, it's because it's a quote from a film that I've seen. So I'm, I've seen Elvira Mr. the Dog dozens of times. It's one of my favourite films. But that was one of the most embarrassing things I ever did. And I was never allowed to forget it for as long as I worked in that department. I am ashamed to say, although I was aware of Elvira, it was more through video games on the Amiga. Um, and she had a pinball machine. Yeah. It? And because I thought it was actually a video game character until you mentioned it. Yeah. A the, while back. Um, the film's really well worth watching. It's Cassandra Peterson, isn't it, mm. who plays the title role. And um, as a straight man, it's very difficult to uh, concentrate on the dialogue. Yeah, there are a couple of outstanding points. There are several outstanding points, writ large. And it's so... And not <sighs> subtly so. No, that's the, that's the thing that surprised me most of all, that uh, in the early 90s, this was made and... Presumably, it was sort of intended for prime time, or yeah, but you look at some of the things, some of the other comedy shows from about the same time, and said, "Marriage with children, that kind of thing." They got so fairly near to the knuckle jokes across. I don't think it would be able to be shown today mm. because I think in the intervening twenty odd years, America's got a lot more prudish. Right. Well, I, th I think it's a terrible shame it wasn't made into a into a series, but there are a number of 
worthy pilots that don't get made into a series will uh, we should do one on on, on uh, that's one pilots that aren't taken off that was one I was I was thinking of oh god what is it uh, it's based on a comic comic book something frequency uh, it's got the Michelle Forbes who played Ensign Rowe it's really good we'll we'll, mm. we'll do that at some point um yeah there are a number of pilots that um that don't get made each season and it, and in among that is some very good and promising ones. It's a real shame that didn't get made because that had... To be honest, that it's not my sort of style of programme. I found that, that constant playing to the audience a bit wearing, but it's certainly no worse than a lot of the trash that comes out of America that's taken up and run with that. I, I found that a lot more... It was different and certainly... I mean, I'd, I'd much prefer to watch a series of that than watch a series of Friends. But Friends, I quite enjoyed, so I, I suppose it's, it's horses for courses, but uh, there's any number of sitcoms out there that, that were taken up, and there's nothing particularly special about them. You though. see, Friends are just regarded as a dull version of coupling. Yeah, but Friends came first. Coupling is, I agree, far more entertaining. Even the slightly ropey fourth series, where... The, the one where they're corpse in, where they, they can't help but um, laugh at the, the funeral. The giggle loop, yeah. yes. Oh. Coupling's one we should put on the list. I, I loved that. The one with the Israeli girl where they they don't understand each other. And, and there's half the episode from her point of view and half the episode... For, I, I, that was really well done. Yes, it was. That it's was a, a credit to both well of them for doing that as well as they did it. Right, so we're, we're segueing We are, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, back to Elvira and back, her beautiful... Down boy. Uh, uh, I, I couldn't have watched that long term without just turning on to see her, which I imagine would have been the point. Because having read the Wikipedia entry for her, she is... 35% of her body was badly scalded when she was a year old. So she said that the Elvira costume just showed the best bits, which... I didn't know that about her. Yeah, she was married to somebody, Martin Pearson, was it? And they got divorced on Valentine's Day. So she sounds like quite an interesting woman, this Cassandra. Actually, I've had two breakups on Valentine's Day. I know people that have done it, yes. And they're, um, yeah. And I, I don't really take notice of the whole Valentine's Day commercial nonsense thing. The commercial side of it, no, but I, I do quite enjoy a, a dinner at home. Um, well, it's your birthday, so. But we are actually supposed to be in memoriaming we are. Catherine and Helmond. The discussion of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark actually leads us into the next slot because the chief protagonist of Elvira's Mistress of the Dark was played by William Morgan Shepherd, who we've also lost recently. He was Old Compton, Delaware in The Impossible Astronaut. And we are going to watch his episode of The New Avengers, which is called Nors. This was the 13th episode, so the final episode of the first series. For those of you who aren't aware of it, the New Avengers was a follow-on series in the 1970s from the 1960s fantasy spy programme, The Avengers. Still stars uh, Patrick McNee as John Steed, but this time with two new assistants. Um, There is Mike Gambit, played by Gareth Gareth Hunt, Hunt, and there is Purdy, played by Joanna Lumley. Similar sort of thing to the later Avengers episodes. It's very tongue-in-cheek. There's some sort of low-level science fiction fantasy um, and some quite silly plot lines, of which this is one. I haven't actually seen this episode for years, but my recollection is that it's very entertaining. And so we're going to watch this in memoriam of William Morgan Shepherd. So we'll raise our glasses, those of us who still have something left in our glass. (coughs) It is very drinkable. Very drinkable. 
that was the New Avengers episode Nors. It's quite a silly episode, um, as a number of New Avengers episodes are. The plot is that there's a government scientist who is working on a way of getting any living thing to grow far larger than it normally would um, with the intention of increasing food production. And he doesn't like the fact that he's working for the government, so he resigns, nicks all his um, experimental materials and notes for it and sets up a little lab on his own. His colleague is also helping him and spills a bit of this stuff down the, the sink, goes into the sewers, and something absorbs it and grows in the sewers. And an awful lot of the episode is where they're trying to work out from conflicting reports quite what it is that's grown. And it turns out to be a rat that's eaten it and they, they end up fighting a, a giant rat through the sewers. Uh, this was December 1976, so a year before Talons of Wang Chang. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, um, the two scientists that uh, made the discovery are eaten by the, the giant rat, as are a, a load of Russian agents and sewer workers. And Steed, Purdy and Gambit managed to, to shoot it in the end and dead rat happy days. I quite enjoyed it. Mm. It's fun. It's a bit of fluff. The, the new Avengers was rarely of the same quality of the original Avengers, but it does the trick. It's an ent- entertaining bit of television. It's entertained me for an hour, the best part of. Mm. Um, it's about all I can say. Um, uh, the story itself is thin at best. Uh, a good three quarters of it is just a bug hunt with a suspiciously large amount of very well-dressed people in a bone-dry sewer chasing around. And when they get knocked into the water, it's, it's very clean water. It's extremely clean water, at which one point Purdy fishes a boot out and cheerfully just puts it back on. There's Without tipping it out. Without just... tipping it out first. So it's a, it's a charming thought. Joanna Lumley with one boot. Anyway, there's some interesting science in it, notably the radioactive... Cash box. There's some dreadful science in it, but it was Dennis Spooner's. It's kind of what we expect. And it's the New Avengers, so we don't really care too much about the science. Mm. It's the fun that we're going for. There were a few Who alumni that we spotted along the way. There was Patterson from Survival. One of the scientists was played by Peter Sellier, who plays Andrews in Time Flight. The lead Russian agent that was there was played by Jeremy Young, who was Cal in The Tribe of Gum, and Gordon Lowry in Mission to the Unknown. And there was a a tramp who gets... It was the tramp who got eaten. Yeah, he was. Yes. Yeah, um, who was Keith Marsh, who was Conway in the film of Dalek Invasion Earth 2150 AD. So a decent cast of Who alumni. Mm. Better realised rat than talent. But a worse realised sewer. So I'll swing some roundabouts. Yeah. And Purdy ends up running around it in a skirt and high heels, which... Again, in the sewer. Everybody's in the Sunday best in the sewer. Purdy's the only one who makes any sort of concession whatsoever. First time she goes down. And then the second time... Back to high heels and a flowery skirt. Although, to be fair, she didn't actually plan to go down the sewers the second time around. She was, she was there to rifle through the the office and laboratory mm. and heard stuff happening Yeah, through the raised manhole sewer cover that they just happened to have in the corner of their laboratory. Now, I've worked in quite a number of laboratories and we've <laughs> never had direct access to the sewer. And I have to say... Why would I've that never, be? I've never wanted it. Is this not a common thing, access to raw sewage? Is that not... There are possibly laboratories where it needs to be. I have thankfully never worked in one. It was all right. It was just, it was a bit of a non-episode, really. Yeah. Some nice bits in it. I must give Peter Sellier his due. There was a truly blood-curdling scream as he got... Chomped. Chomped. Yes. Uh, it, that was quite unpleasant, actually. 
I always thought that he would make the perfect Jeeves. I suspect he's a little bit past it now. He'll be in his late 80s, if not his 90s. If not the ground. No, I think he's still batting. In the, When he was in uh, Yes Prime Minister in the 80s, just the way his, his face, the way he had his hair swept back, his voice, he would have made a perfect Jeeves. Well, we have the Stephen Fry Jeeves. We do. That we can watch an episode of a little bit later. But for now... Shall we head on to our next In Memoriam? Yeah, no, the last In Memoriam wasn't really memoriaming he, tremendously well. He, he wasn't in a... No, William Morgan Sheffield, he, he played a security guard who was in a few scenes. And had some sandwiches. Had some sandwiches, got knocked over the head. Yeah, uh, he didn't do a massive amount of British television, which is why I struggled mm. to find something that he was very significantly in. And I quite liked The New Avengers, so... It was a good excuse. Yeah. Right, so the next one we're moving on to is a double bill in terms of In Memoriam because it's commemorating two people that we've lost recently. John Quarmby um, and Windsor Davies. And in terms of Who alumni, Um, Windsor Davies was Toby in Evil of the Daleks and John Quarmby was in Canine and Company. Yes, you were as uh, Mr Tobias. I did think about doing Canine and Company, but you vetoed it. I do. I want that to... That's our Christmas special this year, Canine and Company. It's uh, one of my go-to things on Christmas. You don't fancy any more of the ghost stories? Oh, yeah. There's room for more. Okay. So what we're going to watch is an episode of The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader from 1971 that they both appeared in. It's the final episode of the series, so Series 2, Episode 8, from an original short story by Edgar Wallace, um, adapted by Emmanuel Litvinoff and directed by Wojtek, and it's called The Treasure House. The Mind of Mr. J.G. Reader, the Treasure House episode, uh, which I've got listed as 1969 rather than 71. Oh, I got mine from IMDb. You would have started in 69. Oh, right. Because so that was the final episode of the second season. Ah, uh, right. So what did you think? I liked it. It was, um, there's not many examples that I've seen, but it's one of those curious pieces of television on the cusp of the changeover between black and white and colour. Mm. Now, the filmed inserts were clearly filmed in black and white, but the studio stuff was clearly all filmed in colour and then washed out to black and white to match the film. There were a few episodes of Coronation Street, I think, that did that, and there was, I think there were even a few that had colour studio work and then still had black and white filmed inserts for location. I don't think that, that lasted very long, but I think there were the odd one or two that, that happened. But the actual... When you don't, because obviously that's the, the last end episode of the second series. Yeah. Um, and it only ran for two series. Oh, so that was the last one? Yes. Oh, well, it was, I enjoyed it. I thought it was quite good. From the title sequence, which is quite... It's almost comedic. I wasn't sure what to expect. I've never heard of yeah. this before. Well, it would... Just say a, bit, a little bit about the background of it. It's a series from the late 70s starring, uh, sorry, late 60s, early 70s, starring Hugh Burden as Mr. J.G. Reader, who is a criminal investigator based on a series of short stories by Edgar Wallace. 
from the and like many Edgar Wallace stories, there's it's a fairly linear plot with lots of twists and turns with a big twist at the end. Mm. And most of his stories tended to follow that that line. And in this, it's um, the story of a young man that Mr. Reader knows who's an ex-safe cracker who meets a young woman, becomes very almost obsessed with her mm. and put uh, tries to see her again, uh, puts adverts in the, uh, the papers to try and find her. And when you see things from her perspective, is equally wanting to, to meet up with the young man. But her family and the, the servants in the house do everything they possibly can to prevent her meeting. Um, and ultimately turns out, and her, her father's very, very wealthy, has a big treasure house in his basement with electrified bars and everything because he has a big collection of gold bars. Young man doesn't give up, give, puts more and more adverts in and is the victim of a couple of uh, attempts at murder, one of which results in the attempted murderer drowning in in a bath. And it turns out that he's the treasure house keeper at the house where this young woman lives. The big twist at the end is that the young woman's father isn't actually her father. No, it's not her father, is it? It's her uncle. It's her uncle. Yeah. Um, isn't actually her uncle. Servants are aware of this. The woman isn't. And he's an ex-schoolmaster who taught the young man that um, starts the whole thing off, who would have blown the whole scam apart, and the, the scam obviously being to get hold of the, um, the treasure in the basement. By impersonating her uncle, yeah. who she hadn't seen for years because she'd been at boarding school. Yeah, um, with the, the collusion of the, pe- of, the, uh, of the servants. So it's a bit twisty and turny with a, with a, um, a big twist at the end. Boy and girl can be happily disappearing off into the sunset mm. together. They're quite fun. You couldn't watch too many of them back to back. No. Uh, but they're not designed to be watched back to back. I thought that was quite quite good stuff. I wouldn't mind seeing more of that. I think he's great in the title role. Yes. And um, and one of the Who alumni. He is. Hugh Burden, who was in, I think, unless he was in some other, certainly in Spearhead from Space, as uh, Channing. And we also had... Damaris Heyman as uh, Mr. Reader's secretary, who's obviously Miss Hawthorne in The Demons. Kenneth Gilbert, who was Dunbar in Seeds of Doom. Um, and Milton Johns as the really very creepy he chauffeur. He was Dunbar. In five years, he aged that much. He must have been on 90 fags a day to get a voice like that. Right. Yeah. And there's Mil- Milton Johns as the creepy chauffeur, um, who was Benick in Enemy of the World, Guy Crawford in The Android Invasion, and Kellner in The Invasion of Time, which we covered in part in our birthday episodes thing. It was, it was just a very gentle, enjoyable watch. I can't, um, I can't pick anything apart about it. I think, the again, the te- from a technical point of view, the jar of the colour to black and white and black and white film is the only thing, mm. technically, that I thought was a little bit off. But the sets were good. The, particularly the um, the big house set, the part of the um, not the treasure house, but the the manor where they yeah. lived was a very lavish big set, and there were some nice location shots. Some very foggy locations. Very shots. foggy and snowy, um, but which, they had to... which gave to some nice silhouettes. Mm. It just really added to the uh, Edwardian era theme. Really, yeah. it was nicely done. Yeah, um, and then of course you've got the big blustering boss, Mister Reader's boss. Sir Jason. Sir, Sir Jason, played by Willoughby Goddard, who wasn't actually a, who isn't actually a Who alumnus, um, but he is notable in telefantasy for being uh, one of the one of the actors in a BBC Sunday play from 1955 called The Voices, uh, an adaptation of a novel called Heroes Walk, which it doesn't exist in the archives, but it's one of the earliest 
BBC science fiction adaptations. And presumably had a heart attack bigger than Mr. Creosote's when he died. He was a quite a big man. He was not small. And also Marjorie Withers, who plays Miss Winkle in The Corridor People. Oh. Which God. we will, of course, be seeing later. Of course, yes. You'll come around to The Corridor People. I'm sure I will, yes. I'm, I'm sure I will. <laughs> well, I faint. Is that why I'll come round? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've just had a short meal break and a bottle of wine, and so now it's time to crack on with the rest of In Moriam. Next up is... Next up is an episode from the Nigel Neal anthology from 1976 called Beasts. This is In Memoriam of Clive Swift, who was uh, in Doctor Who as Mr Jobel in Revelation of the Daleks and as Mr Copper in Voyage of the Damned. Uh, the episode we're going to watch is the sixth in the series, which is The Dummy. Now, Beasts is something we've been talking about looking at for a while. You came across mention to it in a Quatermass fan group. I think I, I did, yeah. Um, and was asking about it. I've, I've seen them all several times and I've had the DVD for years because I'm a bit more OCD about this sort of thing than you are. They're all a cracking good watch. The one that we're going to watch is called The Dummy. It wasn't going to be my first choice of one to watch, although it is a very good story. Um, we will come back and watch it. The episode I was originally going to choose, which is called During Barty's Party. A very good and effective episode, but fantastic use of um, of sound in that one. This one, this one's great um, and has the late Mr. Swift in. So shall we just crack on with it? We should. I just need to make mention because it did quite an uncomfortable read. There's an interview with Five Swift that Benjamin Cook did for Doctor Who magazine when Voyage of the Dam came out, so that would be about 2007. And when Clive Swift died, it resurfaced on the internet. All these links started appearing to this famously grumpy interview, and I thought, well, is this tongue-in-cheek, or is it really... And um, you read it, this interview about him playing Mr Copper, it's an uncomfortable read. God only knows how Benjamin Cook felt actually conducting the interview, because God blob the man, he's, he's padded it out to be a full page worth of interview, but it's very clear that he's struggled doing it. So for those of you out there, I might, if, I, if I can find the, um, the scan that somebody's done, I'll link it to our blog page and our Facebook page so that people can have a read. It's, uh, it's awkward. Was, it, was he not a fan of his time on Doctor Who? He was, he was being interviewed about being Mr. Copper in Voyage of the Damned. Hmm. Which is a pretty meaty part for a, a guest star, isn't he? And the character, actually, he has a, an influence beyond that episode. It comes up that there's... I think the Copper Foundation crops up in, in another episode. But he's so naughty about it. It's, I'm not being paid for this, am I? Why are you asking these stupid questions? You've read the script. Why are you asking me? And yeah, well, the, the, the interview is printed more or less verbatim. It must be. And Benjamin Cook saying, well, he usually sort of loosen up my, my interviewees just by being familiar about the part. And uh, yes, well, you should have done all this. What a silly question. And it's it's... Just an uncomfortable read. I really felt for the guy. Mm. It's worth having a look. Having been in that position as an interviewer... Really? Who were you interviewing? I don't remember. Hmm. (laughs) Isn't it awful for the interviewer when that happens? And isn't it a terrible way for the stars to behave when they do? Ron Booty. Clive, we've got a lot to talk about. And I want to hear it all. There's nothing I want more than to sit down with you... I mean, a greater comfort than this. Catch up on everything. That's what I want. 
But at the moment, let's face it, we've got a problem and it's rather urgent. Hit bottom. I, I, I was right down. I'd never been there before. But over, Clive. Nobody wanted to know. And I, I, I wrote to them all, but they didn't reply. It's been a bad patch. Well, it wasn't just, don't ring us, we'll ring you. They didn't know me. I was just the man that played the dummy. Inside this, the man in the rubber suit. I mean, I, I wrote to Bunny. Here, Bunny, Bunny, you, you yes, remember. Yes. I mean, what prospects for another dummy picture? Well, at that time, there weren't any. I was sick. Oh, mm. my mm. God. I thought that was marvellous. It's fantastic, isn't it? And it's not the best of the series. The cast is a feast of Who alumni. Pretty much everybody in it has been in Doctor Who at some point or other. Really? Because um, I could only find three. Uh, four. So Glyn Houston was Rome Dutt yes. in Power of Kroll. And in Hand of Fear. Um, Michael Sheard was in millions of things, dating all the way back to the Ark, literally. Yes. <laughs> um Bernard Horsfall, um, who plays the title character, was Chancellor Goth in The Deadly Assassin, Taran in Planet of the Daleks, one of the Time Lords in the War Games, and further back than that, Gulliver in The Mind Robber, and Lilius Walker was Sister Lament in Terror of the Zygons. Clive Swift. We'd already mentioned Clive no, Swift, because so, this is his... So that's in the why so you're tripping over them in this. Um, and as alumni of other telefantasy series. Bernard Horsfall was uh, Professor Hawkins in uh, Pathfinders to Mars. And Simon Oakes, were, who isn't a Who alumnus, but played one of the uh, lead roles in Doomwatch, that of Dr. John Ridge. The basic premise of the story is that uh, an actor who plays this monster, the dummy, in a film series and has played it in every film, turns up on film set one day to find that the man who's run off with his wife has been cast in the same film. The producer and the director are unaware of this and it basically sends him mad and he, to cut a long story short, eventually they try and persuade him to go back on set and complete the scene. He has a few drinks with his old mate, the producer, gets a little bit tipsy and the dummy costume, which has mechanical claws, he goes a little bit overboard in one scene, kills his co-star, and then goes on a rampage throughout the studio. They clear the set, and basically they're trying to spend the second half of the film trying to get back into the set and calm him down, which doesn't work. He's yes, and although the actor playing the dummy is the one that do, does the killing, the actually kind of the villain of the piece is Simon Oakes's character. So the the more personable, charismatic actor who was taking his wife away from him, who starts off trying to wreck his performance as much as possible. He turns up in the character's eyeline unexpectedly. He acts very unprofessional. Yeah, he's, on a, uh, he's an arsehole from the, yeah. the moment he appears on screen. And actually on any film set would have been kicked off. He would have been, yes. It, he acts very unprofessionally and, and provokes a reaction out of this other actor. The initial reaction is to try and crawl into, come out of costume and crawl into a bottle. But the producer, who's been a friend of his for a long time, manipulates him into taking on the persona of the dummy. And at the same time, there is a, a journalist on set who is talking a lot about the power of masks and the primitive tribal power of masks. And it reminded me a lot of an interview I saw with Louise Jameson talking about her times when she was at stage school mm -hmm. and talking about how... Because I think she was Rada, wasn't she? Yeah, sure. Um, and how one of the classes that they did were, uh, when they were 
more advanced as students was working with masks. They would look at the mask and they would take in the mask until the mask spoke to them and the mask would tell them uh, tell them what character to portray and then they'd put the mask on and portray that character as a way of sort of plugging into the subconscious. And that seemed to be what was happening here and they, the character took on this persona of the, the monster of the dummy. Did the scene. At the end of the scene, the dummy kills a, a grave digger or a, a, a grave robber into yeah. a Cornish smuggler's garb. And from that, the point of that death, the, the characters of the, the dummy and the actor Clyde pretty much become the same thing. You don't see Clyde anymore. Mm-hmm. You only see the dummy. And even when Clyde later comes out of the dummy suit, he's still making the same sort of sounds yeah. that he made as the dummy. So it carries on. They get Clyde's wife in. And in the meantime, the, the actor who's who she left her husband for uh, has been making some incredibly sexist interview comments to the lady journalist who's there about how he regards it as his mission to separate women from their husbands and um, separate them from the burden of having to work. And it's an awful lot of, for this time, very old-fashioned sexist stuff. Mm. And I'm sure deliberately written as such. So he comes across as a, a very unpleasant character. He's very argumentative with the, uh, the producers when they're trying to calm the situation down. He refuses to leave the set to calm the situation down. He refuses to leave the film to calm the situation down, even though he's been offered full payment and uh, a substantial bonus. He wants to stay there and you get the impression that he wants to stay there to cause trouble for this other actor. Once there's been the death on set, then the police are involved. Initially, they think the reports are of a of a wild animal they try and reason with him and that doesn't happen they get his wife to come and talk to him that doesn't work initially she talks through a microphone uh, and speaker and they he just smashes the speaker she then goes into the um the set he comes very threateningly towards her in the um in the dummy costume and she falls and uh, and ends up rolling about in a, a load of theatrical blood gets pulled away from the the set by um one of the emergency doors ends up absolutely drenched in this fake blood which tips the other actor into sort of hero mode he goes and gets a shotgun that he has in the, the boot of his car that he's been specifically told by the police to to put away and not get involved hides it in his costume, takes it onto the set and shoots the um, the costume of the dummy. In the meantime, Clyde the actor has come out of the costume. So all he does is shoot the costume. He then strangles this other actor who's used both of the, uh, the barrels of his shotgun on the costume. And while he's strangling him, he is coming out with the same sort of noises the dummy that uh, the monster makes. So the original character mm. has been completely swallowed by this new persona of the, of the dummy and the last thing that you see him he's being led away so by the policeman whose who's face he's scraped all apart and he's still gibbering yeah but calmer than he was mm. prior to becoming the dummy in that he was the he was a proper blubbering wreck and trying to crawl inside a whiskey bottle and he's dragged out of that by the producer so if anything he's one of the victims in this oh yeah it's difficult to feel anything other than sympathy for yeah. his character from the word go it's a man in the midst of a, a severe mental breakdown I'd forgotten just how good that episode is. Everybody in it is brilliant. The script is superb. Yeah. It's classic Nigel Neal. There's even nice little comedy touches like a, um, a, a well-renowned character actor who's there for a day who keeps popping up and, uh, and saying, well, if you don't shoot my scenes today, then I'm going to have to leave while the police are running around. And, and he, he's just blithely oblivious to anything that's going on in the, uh, in the rest of the... The standout performance for me is... Bernard Horsfall. Bernard Horsfall. He does very measured very well, um, but he does gibbering very well as well. He does, and he's excellent, and 
Simon Oakes is, is excellent as somebody who starts off as a manipulative bully and then starts to believe that he's the hero of the mm-hmm. piece. To me, the standout performance is Clive Swift. That scene, um, that long extended scene where having a drink. Cl- Clyde is out of, is partly out of costume and Clive Swift's character of the producer persuades him back into costume by persuading him to take on the persona of the dummy. That was just superb. Mm. It wasn't over the top. It it wasn't as dynamic a, a performance as the as Bernard Horsfall's gibbering. It was calm. It was controlled. It was him being utterly manipulative. He starts off the, the scene by saying, "Oh well, you're one of our, our best friends," um, but then it turns out that they haven't actually seen seen each other socially for uh, for nearly two years, and he can't remember the name of Clyde's daughter. And then he he brings that around, has a drink with him, talks him through the value of uh, of being um, the the character of the dummy. It's and, all very well done, yeah. Yeah, and he when he's talking to the uh, the lady journalist later. He admits that that's what he's done, and it, it's had the reaction that he wasn't expecting. His his motivation was to get him into the costume one final time to be able to finish the film. He's very frank with everybody's very frank with the journalist mm. in a way that you never would be now. I won't say it's a different world, but it's certainly a more accessible world, and everybody's more after a little bit of scandal. And having been on the receiving end, you're once bitten, twice shy. I can't imagine anybody on a film set is uh, not media savvy these days. At, at the bare level, it's a story of a failed romance, and it's a very sad one. It's a very common one, but it's when you're the the one left out in the cold when a relationship breaks down and your partner strikes up with somebody new or has left you for somebody else. It is. It does feel like you won't fallen completely apart and um, to have your replacement waved in front of you on a film set you can understand why that would snap somebody's mind if you're already fragile to start with it's a very very good psychological Mm. piece Um, there's a number of the beasts plays where the beast isn't actually the person that you you think or the person or thing that you think it's going to be going into it uh, and that, this is a perfect example of this. I, I don't think, uh, apart from the fact that he kills two people, I don't think Clyde's character is anything other than a victim. Oh, no, he's not. No, not at all. Even no. after he's killed two people and wounded yeah. another, it's still difficult to feel anything other than complete pity for the man. Whereas the the, the villains are Clive Swift's producer character, Bunny, and Simon Oakes's mm. rival Smarmy, actor character. Yeah. We're two days into a, a recording session that's spanning four of all that we've watched so far, and we've crammed quite a lot in. This is my favourite piece. I, I want to do a full episode on Beasts sometime. Yeah. Um, I've, I've actually been holding back, because I thought about this for the, for our, our first wild cards, and then I thought, no, this deserves a full session on its own. Yeah. I, I was originally aiming to do all six, um, so we could do the the remaining five at some other point. Yeah, I would like to see those. That that was a really superb bit of TV. Actually, what I might do there, there's one of them that I really want to see again called During Barty's Party. We could do that as part of this. You year's have Halloween. mentioned that before, yeah. Yeah, we could do that as part of this year's Halloween episode, um, and then that gives us four remaining that would fit. Yeah, nicely that would into better it. fit a nice episode. Brilliant. To come down the final piece of this particular episode, we are going to commemorate the life of the wonderful Shane Rimmer in an episode of Thunderbirds that I have not seen. Now, I know that you're not mad keen on the 
puppet Anderson stuff. I quite like them. I just don't know them terribly well. Mm. Particularly Thunderbirds, Fireball XL5, and to a lesser extent Stingray are very nostalgic for my childhood. Uh, What we're about to watch is one of three brand new episodes of Puppets Thunderbirds that were made in 2016. These were audio recordings that were made in the 60s on vinyl records. There were 20-minute audio adventures with all the original actors, and a group of dedicated fans have taken those audio recordings, cleaned them up, and built new puppets and models exactly to the scale of the originals, and refilmed them. I have not seen these. I've been saving these up for one of our sessions, and I think it would be logical to watch the first of them, which is called Introducing Thunderbirds. Without further ado, Run VT. Sounds perfect. Five, four, three, two, one. Right, that was the first of the brand new Thunderbirds from 2016, and I was very impressed. I mean, that was not a typical episode. The the half-hour episodes rather than the 50 minutes that the originals were, but they are expanded from a mini-album that was produced uh, in the 60s. Uh, Shane Rimmer only had one line, which was F.A.B. <laughs> so probably not the best to showcase Shane Rimmer. But in terms of production, that was very lovingly done. Yes, Looked fantastic. Um, the only thing that jarred slightly is that right at the beginning, when they were doing the establishing shot of the island, they had stock footage. And I don't remember the Super Mario Nation using stock footage. I remember them using models and puppets and real hands and feet when they needed to, but I, I don't remember them using stock footage to, to establish location. They may have done, I'm just remembering wrong, because... I'm most of what I remember of Super Mario Nation is from when I was a kid, mm. but that just jarred slightly. Other than that, it was great because they've obviously used a, a mixture of brand new puppets which are identical to the original. I mean, it's not even you can always tell when something's been recreated, those are identical, and they've blended that in with remastered shots from the original series in the 60s as they were done on film. They have cleaned up beautifully. Even looking at it now, 50-odd years later, the model works very impressive and imaginative, and it stands up very well. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's fun. Thunderbirds was always fun. Of all the stuff that Anderson did, for me, they never really bettered Thunderbirds. Yes, I agree. Uh, When I think Jerry Anderson puppets, the first thing I think of is Thunderbirds. Mm. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I, I like Fireball XL5, I like... Stingray, less keen on Captain Scarlet mm. or Supercar. But I've got a real soft spot for them. I, I remember watching them when I was a kid and thoroughly enjoying them. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was a really nice introduction to the Thunderbird setup. It doesn't actually have a, a rescue no, plot. No, plot of it. Um, all it does is... It's Lady fair, Penelope's first visit to Tracy Island introduction yeah, to it. So a fair bit of humour with Parker and a rundown of which, or, which Thunderbirds do which. And it's always struck me that Thunderbirds 2, 3, and 4 are misnumbered. Because the ones that go together are 2 and 4. So either they should be 2 and 3, and then the spaceship is number 4, or they should be 3 and 4, and the spaceship is number 2. I'd like to say that I've never thought that, but I have. Touch of OCD. Touch of OCD from both of us, uh, 
that really was just a, a bit of pure nostalgia, that half hour. I have to take my, my hat off to all the people involved with that. You have done a seamless, flawless job as far as I'm concerned. I absolutely adored that and it was well worth it. It was fantastic and we should mention as an addendum to the In Memoriam, this whole DVD is a memorial to Sylvia Anderson. It is, yes, who died yeah. in 2016. Yeah. So we we should add a raise of the glass to Sylvia Anderson. Yes, I, I should say so, she was. Or have you finished it all? I've, what a surprise, but... Uh... Well, I've still got some left. Probably because mine wasn't predominantly ice. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> On that note... Well, once more for the tenth. <laughs> On that note, I shall round off this edition of the Extremos Experiment, so we shall raise a final toast to... John Quarmby, William Morgan Shepherd, Windsor Davies, Clive Swift, Catherine Helmond, Shane Rimmer and Sylvia Anderson. Thanks for the ride, guys. Since we've recorded that episode, we've lost Paul Darrow, the actor who played Avon in Blake 7, and we've thought it would be very remiss if we didn't record an In Memoriam segment for this episode. Yes, it is a terrible shame that because we're fans of television of a, a number of decades old, then the professionals involved in in those productions are getting to be of an age where we're having to say goodbye to them. And the most recent person that we need to say goodbye to is Paul Dan, in some ways an underrated actor because he's very well known for his fantastic portrayal of Avon in Blake 7. And there is no doubt he is the the standout character and performer of of that uh, 7, and pretty much the first character they talk about is Avon. Some people talk about Serverland first, but of the the 7, Avon is the one that stands out. Mm. He reprised, he played it for four years, years um he reprised that role in the uh, big finish productions which are entertaining they, they can be a little bit patchy um as any long-running series can but in general they bring the original cast back and it, they're ent- an entertaining group of audios um i'm very pleased to see that big big finish when they did their their announcement about the the future of the the range they announced that they're not planning to recast avon and it's difficult to see how you could recast quite such an iconic performance. The reason I say he's a little bit underrated is because he did other good stuff as well. He was in Doctor Who, okay, he was in Time Lash, which we can draw a veil over, (laughs) Um, not because his performance was bad in it, but because it's Time Lash. But he played the unit sergeant in um, Silurians, and he did a fantastic job of it. Was he was he sergeant or captain? Yeah, I I think he might have been captain. So was he he replaced by Mike Yates or by Benton? I think it was Mike Yates. Um, he played that particular. Yeah, role. they they really missed a trick on that because can you imagine what the unit family would have been like if we'd had Paul Darrow as the second in command <laughs> rather than Fisheye? <laughs> I knew that was coming. My apart from Blake Seven, which I came. You're the very... one, you're the one that told me that I can't unhear it and I, and I can't unsee it. I know you. you... Uh, at some point, that story may come out. I remember going to see Macbeth at the Charter Theatre in Preston. I think it's a little bit late for that, but... Um, I went to see Macbeth at the Charter mm. Theatre in Preston with my mum while I was at high school, and Paul Darrow played Macbeth, and it was superb. Oh, God, and... I saw that I saw that tour as well. I, I, I saw it when I was living down in Bournemouth. He was fantastic. He was, and on the night in question, 
while him and Lady Macbeth are going through the whole conspiratorial speech, the most incredible thunderstorm was raging outside. And me and my mum thought that the special effects and the sound were wonderful and really atmospheric. And it was only afterwards we realised it had been absolutely hammering down one of the worst storms we'd seen in years. It was just all adding to the magic. I, I was actually going to come on and tell this story, and I was going to talk about his performance at, uh, when I when I saw him in, in Macbeth, because it it stayed with me since then. The, the reason it has stayed with me as, as long as it has is I hated Shakespeare at school. Mm. I really hated it, um, and the reason is I date back many more years than you do, and I date back to the old <laughs> O level syllabus, and there used to be O levels, and there were AOs, and the O level was the basic qualification. The AO was the one that followed on from that. And O levels used to do two set books. The AOs people did six books. When I was at school, I was top stream science, so I couldn't do top stream English. So I did I did O level English. We had to do a Shakespeare and a something else. And the Shakespeare that I did was Henry V. Oh God! Incredibly long, incredibly yeah. dull. And if it's your first introduction to Shakespeare, just completely puts you off and following on from that i had zero interest in shakespeare i just thought it was the dullest shit on the planet <laughs> because i'd had to plow my way through henry v as a 14 15 year old the second book we did was chaucer's general prologue which would just destroyed any interest in literature at all because that was basically a list of people who were on the pilgrimage with none of the tales it was uh, monumentally dull wow you must have had an outrageously and exciting english lesson I did French lit as well. Um, so I, I did French language and French lit. And I did Albert Camus' uh, L'Etranger. It was a fantastic book. Effectively, the two English lit books that I did were in foreign languages because one was in Shakespearean English and one was in Chaucerian mm. English. So they almost needed word-for-word translation. The modern French was infinitely more entertaining. And there was a Cure song about it. So what was not to love? Um, <laughs> Dragging us back to Paul Darrow. Yeah, I, I was dragged along to see Macbeth and really didn't want to. And it was that production. And um, it wasn't just his performance. I can't remember who, who else was, was in it. Mm. Um, I mean, it, actually, the reason I agreed to go along to it was because of, it was because he'd been in Blake 7. Yeah. Um, you see, my mum told me that he'd been in Blake 7 before I'd seen an episode of Blake 7. So that was there was a mild interest there because I knew that it was science fiction. And I wasn't overly interested in Shakespeare. It's just one of those things... It was a night out with my mum to the theatre and she was really keen and no one else wanted to go with her, so I enjoyed it for that. Uh, no, I do I do enjoy I, I remember enjoying it far more than I expected to. But I came to Blake 7 very late in the day. It was a good 10 years after it had finished. There were the repeats on UK Gold. And it was evident from about the second or third episode in that although it was called Blake 7, Avon was really the most uh, interesting character Oh, yes, absolutely. And was right the way through the run. And really sort of overshadowed the whole of the rest of his career. It did, which is both a shame, but he's a, also... Back to the, uh, Sorry, go And it, it's indicative of just how good the performance was. And they, I, I know we've critiqued a, a couple of episodes of Blake 7 on our, our podcast. And I think in both of them, we've we've mentioned that the standout scenes are the Avon and Serverland scenes. Yeah, and everybody are. else kind of just fades into the background while the, the two of those are, are just bouncing off each other. In reference to Big Finish, the, they've been lucky insofar as we've lost Gareth Thomas a few years ago, but a good 50% of Blake 7 didn't have Blake in it. 
So they've managed to get around that and- by utilising Avon. To come out and say the day after he died, we are not going to recast Avon, but we're going to carry on with Blake 7. I don't actually see how they're going to do it unless they're going to be sort of companion-style chronicles. It's going to make it life very hard work for them, but the best of luck. Well, they've recast we'll, other, we'll I think they've recast Day. Dana, haven't they? Have they recast Tarrant as well? Which no one really seems to have given much of a toss about. But to recast Avon... I don't think you could get away with that. Yeah, and uh, I mean they're, they're they're recasting all sorts of people because have you seen that the uh, most recent thing is that they've recast Katerina, Katerina and the Brigadier. And to be fair to John Coleshaw, he does a good idea. Uh, he does a good impression. Katerina, it's interesting, but as you pointed out, as when we did Day of Armageddon, a lot of her acting involves knitting catalogues, oh, staring into the middle distance. I think what I pointed out was that she was bloody awful. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's any major loss we didn't have her as a character for too long. Yeah, and actually, in in some ways, well, certainly when I was uh, starting off in, in fandom, Katarina was was almost a sort of mythic character because she she was the one companion that we we had almost no visuals of, mm. um, and this, this predated telesnaps, and we had had a couple of clips, and then we found an episode of her and realised exactly why they got rid of her so quickly. <laughs> but we're getting a Again, long, long way tag. from the point. But yes, so this was just a little vignette to um, celebrate the the life and career of Paul Darrow because for both of us he has been a big part of our television watching and our growing up and he's one of those actors that when you get the news through that they've died it does actually hit you, there's another slice of childhood gone. Yes, I loved Blake Seven right from the, the word go. I watched it from the first episode right the way through to the through to the last episode. It sort of filled in my childhood years through to just about hitting teenage, and I I loved every episode of it. And a big chunk of that was how good Paul Darrow was in the role. And it's only fitting that he got the very last shot of the entire series. And with that, we shall sign off this particular episode. We shall be back in a fortnight with our next edition. Thanks for listening to our ramblings. Take care. Goodbye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.